1: I've fallen down in nearly everything I've done. <laughs> I'm very bad at balance. <laughs> I fell down in the cherry orchard. And Ronnie Pickup had to drag me off.
2: <laughs>
3: David Tennant does a podcast with Jim Parsons,
4: Stacey Abrams,
3: George Takei, Judy Dan. Jan Levy,
4: Kush Jumbo, Tim Minchin,
3: Brian Cox,
2: Elizabeth Moss, Neil Gaiman, Billy Piper,
3: Oh, hello, lovely listeners. Hello and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this very special episode of David Tennant Does a Podcast With. This is, if you like, the season two finale. It's a season finale, but without any cliffhangers or deaths of major characters. Hopefully. Uh, It's a season finale filled with all the bits we didn't have time for in the interviews that you've heard so far. Little extra bits little, little juicy nuggets that you weren't perhaps expecting. You've already heard from Judy Dench talking about falling over, glorious, and much more of that sort of stuff to come. But of course, making season two was a different experience to making season one because we were all locked in our house. The great global pandemic of 2020 meant that we had to do everything remotely. Uh, and recording through a global pandemic has its own set of technical and logistical challenges as you can imagine as brian cox in his woodland shed can attest to can you hear me i'm not sure if you can can you you can hear me yes hello yeah, there we go we've got there <laughs> <laughs> i've been sent
5: so many mics and so many things if you looked around this room i could start a sound studio which i can sell from <laughs>
3: Yes, various guests have struggled with the technology in various different ways. I've certainly struggled with it myself. But we get there in the end, eventually. Uh, you know, we pull out wires and plug in different ones, and sometimes people enlist family members to help them along the way. Yeah, it looks like it's
6: recording. Okay, so now I'm going to go get George. George?
3: George, good morning. Can you hear us? I can indeed. Good morning. How wonderful. Yes, thank you to Brad there, the other half of George Takei for making that recording a possibility um, and if you've been listening carefully over the weeks you may have caught the sounds of daily life creeping into these ever so professional productions pets, uh, some children, uh, Judy Dench's neighbours
1: David, I could stop for a second because sure. somebody's mowing the lawn
3: Yes, there is, okay, is there a bit of something I don't Can think you hear that... it? Yes, but I don't think that's Here it comes again
1: Sammy
3: But yes, we have conquered these many challenges We've had a few false starts But we've got there in the end We have brought you conversations with amazing people From wherever they are around the world Thanks to the interweb We did it And indeed, we managed to get some extra bits That you haven't heard yet So here we go Here's the wonderful Dan Levy With a delicious tale. Can I say that Dan Levy has a delicious tale? Don't know well, I've said it. It must have been very all-consuming over the past six years for you, but you have you have managed to squeeze in some other things, I noticed, like presenting the Canadian version of the Great British Bake Off. Was <laughs> yeah. that because you were a fan of the British
7: show? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You- in fact, I didn't even know they were doing a Canadian show. I was watching the Great British Baking Show and, and tweeted that if it ever came to Canada, I would love to throw my hat in the ring to host. And then within ten minutes... They bit your hand. I got off. a response saying, uh, "Not only is it coming to Canada, but would you actually be interested in hosting?" They, right. But you're not a baker. Oh God, no, 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 no! I'm a professional eater
3: of baked goods. Sure, but when you're recording that show day after day, is there not? Do you not reach a point where you go, "I cannot put another piece of fucking sponge in my mouth"?
7: Never. Never. But I have an uncanny ability to just consume food without Perfect. any stop.
3: Okay, it is a skill. <laughs>
7: It's a wild skill set. (laughs) I ate everything.
3: Did you? Much more than you had to. Oh,
7: above and beyond. To the point where I had to, like, go to the gym when I left set just to work off all the stuff that I had been eating. But it was a dream.
3: Dan Levy there talking about being the host of the Canadian version of the Great British Bake Off. Who knew? I didn't. We also heard from Jim Parsons, the brilliant Jim Parsons, who told me about life before he was everyone's favorite comedy geek on The Big Bang Theory.
8: I spent a lot of time on unemployment and I was working another job as like a front of, it was this fabric store called Hable Construction down in Soho and, or were they in Nolita? I can't tell apart. Anyway, and I was working there a few times a week and that was the, I guess that was the only job I took once I graduated from grad school that was not acting were you good at it no 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 oh well i I wasn't that hard to be decent at it because they didn't ask that much of me and i was nice to people which i guess was the main part of the job but no my finest moments were when there was nobody in the shop and i could rehearse an audition on the
3: on the floor of the
8: store yeah you know
3: but you because you'd chosen to move to new york to become an actor rather than los angeles
8: because i'd never done any camera work At all. I mean, my logic at the time. And also, remember, we're making this decision literally right after 9-11. So, but even then, I was like, well, it's New Yorker bus. This is 2001. And I was like, I just don't understand the logic of throwing myself into a city that's all camera work based, for the most part when all I've done is theatre, and all I've trained for is theatre, and it's not that I don't want to do it, but I feel like I I should go to the theatre town and see where that leads.
3: Okay, right. Of course, Sheldon Cooper, from The Big Bang Theory, as played by Jim Parsons, would have been terribly overexcited to find out that George Takei was on the podcast, because George Takei, of course, was Mr Sulu in Star Trek, globally famous for decades now, recognised all over the world. But... Turns out that that kind of global anonymity rather crept up on him. Ten years later, I'd be this enormously successful motion picture. What what, were you aware uh, that this this enormous fandom was kind of bubbling up while the show was on air, or did it all happen after the event? Did you start becoming famous after you were no longer on television? (laughs) It was after the event. Yeah, we were cancelled in '69. Hmm. And it
6: was in 70 that um, I got a telephone call, a sweet young voice. She said, um, we're getting together to have um, coffee and tea at the uh, Hilton Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. We'd like to uh, have you come join us and talk to us about your experience on Star Trek. And I told her, "Uh, you do know that the show is canceled. (laughs) (laughs) She said, (laughs) (laughs) yes, yes, we do know, and we love the show, and we'd love to have a small group uh, chat with you about it. I said, you know, it was so sweet, people who love the show. And so I uh, said, all right, when are you gathering? And I drove downtown and uh, met with them, and it was a small group, about a dozen at most and mostly right. female. I think there were two guys there, and the others uh-huh. were all girls. And uh, I had uh, tea and cookies, biscuits, uh-huh. had a nice conversation, and I thought, you know, it's going to peter her out eventually. And then and that I, was your
3: first Star Trek convention. That
6: was the first Star Trek convention. Yeah. And a few months after that, I got a phone call from uh, a woman in New York, and she was a very fast-talking, pushy New York woman. She said, "Uh, we're holding a big convention. I thought, oh my, to call it a convention. I I visualized that first gathering of about a dozen people. She said, we're having a convention at uh, one of the biggest hotels in New York and we'd like to have you fly over to New York. I said, well, you know, Uh, Air tickets are expensive from Los Angeles to New York. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about that. And we'll put you up at the hotel for the weekend. And so I thought, this woman is mad. (laughs) Uh, Pay for air flight and put us up in a a first-class hotel and uh, have a convention. (laughs) Because I was visualizing what I saw, uh, what what I experienced in Los Angeles. And uh, she said, well, just to give you some comfort, we'll send you the ticket. I said, oh, really? I had doubts about that, but I sure. kind of played along. And sure enough, the tickets came. It was first class. <laughs> I said, these people are mad. They're going to lose their shirts. <laughs> this is crazy. But she sent the, the plane ticket. So I flew, and Jean Roddenberry <laughs> flew there, too. They had about... Uh, Oh, four or five of us, including Gene Roddenberry. And I arrived at night, and there was somebody at the airport to meet me, one of the volunteers. They hustled me to the hotel, and it was the night before, so not, not too many people there. And I went straight up and, uh, They said, uh, we'll uh, come and uh, escort you through the kitchen. I said, through the kitchen? Why can't we go in through the banquet hall? And they said, oh, no, no, it's too many people. I thought to myself, these New Yorkers always are such exaggerators, talking so big. But (laughs) nevertheless, that young man was there in the morning and took me through that smelly uh, hotel kitchen uh, of the Commodore Uh Hotel. And... uh, Then we went through the kitchen, and I heard the roar coming from the uh, banquet hall. And I thought, good Lord, what is this? And then we got to the uh, backstage area, and it was... A lot of people that I heard, and they introduced me. I stepped onto the stage, and it was a thunderous roar that uh, that greeted me. And there were people on the balcony just hanging over the balcony. I mean, it was that crammed. And that's when I knew an yeah, uh, yeah. extraordinary phenomenon was happening.
3: <laughs> Kush Jumbo comes from Lewisham in London, quite a long way from Hollywood and Broadway where she ended up. But, turned out, there was a bit more showbiz in her family than she first realised. I love the idea of you as this little girl writing in your diaries about all the drama that you were enjoying in life and that your name was going to be up in lights one day and that it would all be fine. Is that where the idea of becoming a performer came from? I mean, did you have precedence in your life did you know any actors or dancers or right no
4: david that's what i'm saying yeah my dad used to say fred and ginger left me on the doorstep in a hamper okay but they don't know where it came from thinking about it i don't know my extended family on either side really so i like to think that somewhere deep into lincolnshire and somewhere deep into nigeria this is definitely in my family didn't you
3: say there is a nigerian acting connection
4: well, yes. I found out recently that I have an aunt. Well, she, you know, she's my dad's half-sister okay. through his dad, who, you know, he hasn't seen in years and I've never met. She's a massive Nollywood actress. If anyone doesn't know what Nollywood is, it's like the Nigerian Bollywood. It's bigger, right. actually. Yeah. It's the biggest thing after Bollywood, before okay. Hollywood. Millions of followers on every platform. And, yeah, she's an actress, producer, writer...
3: And your dad had never mentioned this.
4: Oh no, that's my dad all the way. He's like, right? Oh yes, Dad. Who's this Uche Jumbo that I'm just finding? People are saying, are we related? Who's let me see? Oh yes, that's my sister. What? That's my sister. Oh yes, she's a very famous, Nollywood. I'm like, what? Didn't you think this would be... Oh, passing interest, at least. Like, an important thing to... I've been saying to you my whole life, where does this come from? There's no one else remotely in the family it does does any, anything near what I do and definitely isn't, like, a maker of things. Like, I'm a maker of things. And there's this woman. Fair enough, we've never met, don't have a relationship with her. She wouldn't know who I was from Adam. But I did think that was a bit, like, bonkers. Yeah. For it never to
3: have occurred to him to bring it up does seem quite unlikely.
4: That's just my dad. It's just you know Tottenham Hotspur and newborn babies. That's,
3: That's it. it, right? That's it. Yeah. You've got you've got to meet her,
4: surely. I, I know. I kept thinking I should do a documentary or something where I do like you know Hollywood to Nollywood, yeah, Hollywood to Hollywood, and like I go because they have a whole different process of filming things and rehearsing things and writing things. And it's all very melodramatic and almost like theatre from the Victorian era or something, and. um I kept thinking, "Oh God, yeah, I should go out there and shadow her and find out what it's like oh, to be." And be then I brilliant, thought, you know. But then you're going to have like someone annoying showing up on your doorstep, like going, "Hi, I'm your person like that you've never met." She would like, be
3: thrilled. Come on, at least it's a know. great episode of Who Do You Think You Are?
4: Without, a I mean, doubt. it would be even yeah. if you slammed the door in my face. It would be, yeah. yeah. That's good so, television in itself. Yeah. <laughs> Cush's rejection. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, Yeah. It is, it is in my family. But, yeah, the rest of it, I don't know. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Do you ever
7: wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No.
3: The multi-talented Tim Minchin can sing, write songs, make blockbuster musicals, act. Performance seems to run through his veins. But as a kid, turns out he had other passions that might have sent him on a very different path.
9: We were a hockey playing family. This is the weird thing. I was more into hockey than music up until my 20s right a lot of my teenage years i played hockey five times a week oh serious so it, we'd be training three times and playing twice and i loved it and i was good right. i was fine i was like everything More better than I, most I had, yeah i had a bit of flair you know and then i realized i could run a bit of distance a bit of an 800 a bit of a 1500 like second division in the school yeah. thing but we were like sporty actually. We were a sporty family. That's the weird thing. But uh, there was plenty of music and my uncle was a muso and we'd go see him play, but he was the black sheep of the family. So it was rare.
3: And what kind of stuff was he playing?
9: Oh, bluegrass and blues. He's amazing. There's footage of me on the Sydney Opera House steps. I get him up to play one of his songs that he wrote in the year I was born. Oh, wow. It's, It's an amazing moment. He's an incredible, beautiful musician. Right. As is his son. And I've got musos all over the family now. Right. A hell of a lot of it's down to my big brother because my big brother really loved music and learnt guitar and just really wanted me to learn the songs he was learning so we could play them together. Right. And then my sisters, we'd all sing harmonies. And my brother had such a profound influence on us just because he was, he was a good boy. He was quite high achieve which probably speaks a bit to why I'm so needy in terms of proving myself. Yeah, sure. If you're into your Freudian. But but mostly we all just wanted to do what he did. So we all did an arts degree at University of West Australia. We all played hockey. We all did drama. We all...
3: To be like your big
9: brother. Yeah, I don't know. We, we're yeah. just lucky. We just all liked the same stuff and, yeah, wanted to... went. That looks fun.
3: Handmaid's Tale, Mad Men, The West Wing. Basically, modern day television has Elizabeth Moss to thank for existing. But she told me that the decision to pursue acting might not have happened. So you were very focused on the ballet and the dancing. But then that just what the acting just tipped the scales, or how did how did the dancing go away?
0: Yeah, so when I was 15, that's kind of a a really formative time as a dancer. And that's when you start auditioning for companies and you start pursuing a professional path, Right, uh, which is so crazy to think about because it's so young, but it's the truth. So you, that's the time that you kind of have to go, which way am I going to go? Am I going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this professionally and get into a company or am I not? And I realized that I couldn't do both. And I remember having a very long talk with my mom about it. I remember sitting on my bed, in my bedroom, and talking to her. And now looking back, I, you know, I'm like, I can't believe we had such an incredibly sort of mature conversation about this. But I decided that I could see a life without ballet, but I couldn't see a life without acting. Right. And it wasn't just acting. I loved going to set. I loved getting to know the crew. I loved the familial atmosphere. I loved the traveling of it. And I, I I love the whole thing. And so I knew that I couldn't do both. And I also thought, and I can't believe I thought this at 15, I'm sure my mom helped, but that as a dancer, you know, your career is over very early. Sure. And even if you're successful and you don't get injured, all of those things, you know, it would be around now that I would be kind of thinking about what I was going to do next.
3: The lovely Billy Piper also made a transition from choreography. I mean, to be fair, she can still cut a few shapes on the dance floor when she chooses to, but she used to do it professionally. She was a pop star, like an actual proper pop star. uh, And she moved from that to acting. We spoke all about that and about how her career has changed of late. How comfortable are you with all that promotional hoo-ha?
2: Um whether well, the sort of the, the promotional stuff I've become less comfortable with um I've actually found doing things on Zoom and not being live in a studio or not being not having to show up and attend in that sort of shiny way I find that massively relaxing. Oh that's good. Um yeah so I've I've actually quite enjoyed that experience and I think it's because there's no pressure to sort of look great and I don't know probably just that simply just <laughs> yeah yeah you know, all the, the stuff that you have to do to go on those shows it actually become quite stressful as a woman. I don't know if it's the same as a man. Look great or be funny and yeah. have good anecdotes. And, you know, there's this sort of padding around this experience that I prefer. So that stuff was fine. And then the, the things that people say, you know, fortunately that's gone quite well. So all round, thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's
3: interesting you say that you prefer doing all those shows remotely. But i find the difficult bit about that is when you go into the studio to do a talk show or whatever you've got the bit in the car to transform from harried parent to yeah. sort of showbiz personality and that that i find that quite tricky that you're literally going have you eat your beans and then suddenly you're on air because you're all in the house together that's a I, bit tricky don't you yeah
2: think? yeah that is tricky that is tricky, but I sort of feel like that in the car on, on the way to the studio because, you know, someone's calling with unsurprisingly, some stressful bit of information and, or you're getting ready and the kids are on the phone asking when you're going to be, it's, it's always, that is always yeah. my experience.
3: That balancing act between the private and professional life is really tricky but can sometimes be the unexpected engineer of a brand new, wonderful chapter, which would seem to be the case for Kush Jumbo. So now you're back home. You've left that behind you. Are, you. are you back home? Is this now, do you live in London now? Yes, permanent. Right. It's a
4: permanent move. Was that always something that was going to happen or? It's when you have kids. I mean, right. having a kid changes things, right? Like, you know, it just, there are things you begin to think about that you didn't have to before and I'm not I'm, I don't I'm not going to insinuate or suggest that it's any easier for a male actor because you're a male but when you're the mum and the actor as well mm-hmm. it's like this balancing guilt thing of you really are trying to leave them in some stability because of how much you have to disappear and their mum isn't going to be there and that sounds silly because, like I said, I have my dad the other way around. So it should just work either way and be equal. But it's really hard, especially when they're small. You know, they're months, weeks old, months old, and you're leaving them mm. and they're sick or whatever. But I think it became apparent that, OK, here's the things that are never going to change. I'm always going to have to travel. I'm always going to have to jump around. And they'll get to the point where dragging him around isn't going to be an option and not fair So how are we going to make that work? Well, in New York, we have no extended family and we don't really have a network that we can rely on in that kind of way. Someone can't just come and watch Max for the weekend or, you know, relieve Sean if he's been on with him all week or unless, you know, you decide that you want an army of staff Mm. to pay, which is not quite the same thing. And obviously I've got all these brothers and sisters, they're all having kids. My closest friends who are not actors and live here are all having kids. And I want Max to grow up knowing who he is and who we're close to and have that like support network and identity. And and honestly, I think I, think I can say, I wanted him to have a sense of his British culture, which is totally different from raising a kid in New York, mm. it's not better or worse. It's just different. And I felt that he needed to understand who Sean and I were by growing here, being a seedling of this, you know, yeah, this place. So I'm so I'm really happy to be back, mm. and um, I'm really happy. I didn't think I'd be close to this happy. I'm kind of ecstatic. Other than the pandemic thing,
3: sure. There's I'm that, ecstatic. but that will presumably pass.
4: Yeah, we hope,
3: yeah, yeah. Like Kush, the politician, activist and all-round wise person from Atlanta, Georgia, Stacey Abrams also came from a big family. And here she is telling me all about it.
4: I mean, I'm an introvert. So growing up in a house that was not designed for eight people, certainly not six children, was, you know, it required that I carve out my own space. Sometimes I would go and you know, sit in a closet so I could read and just not have to talk to any people. But it also meant I never had to have friends because I had them at home. Um, I did have friends. But we had this very, like my parents told us, your job is to take care of each other. And we are all still very close. We have a monthly book club. Uh, Right. We believe in one another. And so- I could not imagine not having them as siblings. I mean, look, I was, you know, I would like to say I was about 15 before I realized the Snickers really could satisfy because I didn't have to divide it up with everybody. And like having a whole candy bar to yourself was a revelatory moment. But yeah, you know, it was, I am, I am truly, truly grateful for having the siblings that I have.
3: One of the things we often talk about on the podcast is how people go about finding out sort of who they are what their voice is particularly creatively so here's Neil Gaiman and then Tim Minchin on some important moments of clarity that they've had in their life in the edition I've got you in the introduction you talk about some of the early issues when you look back at them now that you describe them as awkward and ungainly is that because was it taking you a while to find your voice that sort of I mean what what is it that's awkward and ungainly what is it you see
10: in those early stories <sighs> Um, I didn't know what I was doing, which was a good thing. Actually, it really was a good thing because if you don't know what you're doing, then you don't know what the rules are. And you're actually, you find yourself, you know, there's a door marked no exit, but you actually discover that you can walk through it and nothing actually is going to stop you. It's just nobody's ever walked through it before. Mm. So I was allowed to to do things like that. And I was also trying to find out for myself what this thing I was writing was. So I can point at the first, particularly the first eight episodes of Sandman and go, okay, well, the first one is me trying to do M.R. James and Dennis Wheatley and all of this sort of classic English horror stuff. The second one is me doing particularly EC comics and that kind of horror hosty thing and much more comic book. The third one is me trying to do a sort of a Ramsey Campbell, Clyde Barkery contemporary 80s horror using John Constantine. The fourth one is me doing people like Heinlein, who we don't think of as fantasy writers, were writing a lot of fantasy in the 1940s for a John W. Campbell edited magazine called Unknown Worlds, I think it was called, or Unknown. And there was just something really interesting about what people were doing at that time. And I thought, okay, I can write one of those. And that's my trip to hell. And then having gone through all that, Sandman 8, The Sound of Her Wings, felt like I was finding out who I was. It's just a story of, you know, he meets his Sister, he's feeling very sorry for himself, and they go for a walk through New York and he cheers up. But somewhere in there, it was was like, oh, I think this is who I am. I think this is what I sound like. Right. You know, it was the equivalent of the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours or whatever. There was just that point where I was starting to discover me. I think it was Chuck Jones who did Bugs Bunny and, and Roadrunner who said that you have a million terrible drawings inside your pencil and you need to get them out so the good ones can come. And I feel that way about everything I wrote before that story. There are are actually some good things, but anything good that I wrote before then is me sounding like somebody else. It's me going, oh, I love this thing Uh that, you know, this writer, an obscure writer named John Collier did. And I can write a John Collier story or I'll write a R.A. Lafferty story, or I'll write something that feels like a gothic. I could do things, and then one day I sort of discovered what, what Neil Gaiman's stories sounded like, and that was a completely new process for me.
9: The, the, the weird thing about comedy is I had never done stand-up. I'm, I don't identify as a comedian, but it seems to be the case that when I'm on stage... I have some sense of the rhythm of how to make people laugh. Yeah, I'm incredibly comfortable on stage with plentiful exceptions. And I guess being back on tour again has made me have a bit more respect for how lucky I am that I can do that. And I, I, I guess I'm so desperate to go back and tick all those boxes of things I wanted to do, to be taken seriously as an actor to be taken seriously as a composer-lyricist, to just be taken seriously as a communicator. And I've been so obsessed by that, not obsessed, but that's just been what's driving me, and much more noble things like wanting to be a better father and not tour as much and all that, that I've forgotten how incredibly lucky I am that i find getting up on stage and making people laugh which is the most wonderful thing to be able to give people that i find that quite easy is something i Mm -hmm. guess i took for granted and i'm not going to take that for granted anymore
3: i love a bit of shakespeare and we've had a few guests on the podcast who share my passion for it and who are masters of the art one of the all time great Shakespearean actors. He knows how to play with those words. is Brian Cox.
5: I mean, I, I love Shakespeare. I just adore Shakespeare. You know, I mean, uh, you can't get around him as a writer. You just simply can't.
3: You went from not far, not long after you were at the RC doing Titus Andronics, you went back to the National to play King Lear. As quite a young man, relatively. 44. Yeah. Did you feel ready to play? that age did you need the energy for first right
5: right you do need the energy i mean you haven't got the the wisdom i mean and i would take it i would do it differently it's a great play but it's a it's a difficult play i mean it's a hard play because it's not Everybody thinks it's Lear, but it's not. It's it's the the Edmund subplot is incredibly important, and it also is, dominates the second half and all the Gloucester stuff. So it has to be a kind of ensemble production. know, yeah. it has to be as much an ensemble as anything else, um, and it's not easy. You know, because Lear, yeah. you know, after after the hovel scene, he's only got three or four scenes. The scene with Gloucester, he's, he's, there's only two more scenes in the movie and yeah. in the, in the play, you know. So that was difficult, but I enjoyed it and I loved doing it. But a lot of it was, you know, we invented Titus. We invented it. Because it wasn't set. such a, We didn't yeah. have costumes. We didn't have anything. We invented it from the rehearsal floor up. And I realized that that's the best way to do Shakespeare is that you you reinvent it you don't come with any the, the the conception is to do with the group and to do with you know like there's a bunch of ladders in the rehearsal room and guys grabbed their ladders and they sat me on the ladder and they lifted me up and right. that was that was that's how it happened you know yeah. it happened organically
3: and that presumably that that's a bit easier to do when it's not one of those cuz king lear is one of those olympic events isn't it that that, that is and it, I suppose that's an inducement and also a discouragement in, in in a way, yeah.
5: It's a it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, it really is in that way. Yeah,
3: because everybody's done it and everyone's got their favourite and all that. And of course, if we're talking about all things Shakespeare, then we've got to hear from Judy Dench. Here she is talking about one of her very earliest experiences in one of the Bard's plays, in A Midsummer Night's Dream.
1: You were called um, only by your surname. You know, called. Miss Dench. Oh, I see. Well, just in know. rehearsals, just at, at the or, tea okay. break. Oh yes, by my really? eventual yes, right. and um, when we did, I played the first fairy in about my first or second season in the Dream, first season I think fifty-seven, fifty-eight, maybe, or the next. For other fairies, they went to the Royal Ballet School, oh. and they had these exquisite creatures exquisite, and I was playing the first fairy, and Michael Bentall, we had notes one day, and he said to me, he said, Miss Dench, I don't want to see you coming in, barging into all those girls, he said, with your hands like two lattice. What does he mean? But they were, they were, they were, I mean, there was nothing of me then, <laughs> but there was, absolutely uh, Absolutely nothing of them. Right. You know, they were exquisite, they were. And there was I, (laughs) being the first fairy crashing into them. Terrible.
3: But Shakespeare wasn't the only love affair we heard about. Here's Dan Levy again. I love London so much. I had the best time.
7: It was everything I wanted it to be. And I hope to return there at some point you know, in the near future. Have you not been back since? I've been back a few times, but I haven't been, I haven't lived there since. And I have always wanted to kind of spend a, a chunk of time there. We would, we would be very happy to have you. I go on a lot of dates
3: in London. You do? Yeah. It's a long way to come for a date. And
7: I don't know why that is, because I don't, I don't go on a lot of dates in America. <laughs> so I don't, it's it's part of the reason why I'd like to go back <laughs> 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 to be honest. Interesting.
3: What but there yeah. must be some reason. You must do you I feel know. particularly liberated in London? Does it
7: I don't know whether it's just like a, a because I'm Canadian. There's kind of a sensibility. There's a similar sensibility to the to the British You're
3: exotic. That's what it is. To the
7: British culture. Um, I have very generous friends that like to set me up with people when I go there. I don't know. It's been very lucky for me, and I just love. I love the city. Right. I love the feel of it. I love the social aspects of it. It's been you know. It's been very kind to me.
3: Well, you'll be welcome here any time, I can assure you. I speak for all of London there.
7: I can't wait to get back.
3: So now here's Neil Gaiman tantalizing his legions of fans with a little bit about
10: what's coming next for him. The next new book that's coming out is called Pirate Stew, and it's a poem illustrated by Chris Riddell about some kids who wind up getting babysat by pirates and what happens and everybody's making pirate stew and then donuts come into it mysteriously and it's it's glorious and silly and this big book for kids and it's nothing like any of my other books for kids and it's nothing like any of my other books for adults and I like the fact that there is a if anything unites the Neil Gaiman brand It's the idea that the voice will probably be mine and the point of view will definitely be mine. But you don't know what that's going to be. Some of them are funny. Some of them are scary. Some of them are serious. Some of them, you know, Coraline isn't Stardust, isn't American Gods, isn't Good Omens, isn't Sandman. But it's the best Coraline it could be. And the Graveyard Book is the best Graveyard Book it could be, but the Graveyard Book also isn't Coraline 2, despite the fact that everybody wants Coraline 2 and everybody wants more Coraline. And I've never gone back to Coraline because I've never come up with a Coraline story that's better than Coraline 1. Right. I'm writing a new Neverwhere novel right now, started with me getting fascinated and saddened and involved with refugee issues and, and and realizing basically how incredibly fragile the worlds we live in can be, how easily broken going out to refugee camps in Jordan and talking to Syrian refugees and realizing, you know, three years ago, these people were us they were car salesmen they were they owned corner shops they sold insurance they were dentists they they were living a normal life in a normal place and now everything has gone away and you know you drive a tank through a village and one of the things about driving a tank which is incredibly heavy through a village is it crushes all the water mains under the village. So now nobody has any water and they're getting their water from the nearby swamp and letting it sit overnight. So the gunk will settle and then they're boiling it, but they're still getting kind of sick and the farmers aren't going into the fields mm. anymore because people were shooting at them and putting landmines. So now there's no food and they've eaten all the dogs and the cats because that was what they had. And they're really hungry. So they decided to walk across Syria to try and get out, even though they knew they might get killed because the prospect of staying was worse. And every single person who is a refugee has a story like that, that is an absolute personal nightmare. And all I'm hearing over and over is just how fragile civilization, which we think is so incredibly sturdy, is. And I thought, I, I want to talk about that. I want to tell a story about some of this. I want to tell people about this stuff. I wish I had a a way of talking about issues like this already. And I realized that, well, I, I did. I had neverwhere, which I sort of, the idea of London Below was a way of talking about homelessness without talking about homelessness. It was a way of talking about surviving in an urban collapse without actually talking about that. And I thought, well, I've already made that as a machine and realised as I started to write it that there was a Neverwhere story that I never told and had always planned to tell, which was called The Seven Sisters. So I'm rather nervously gone back to it. And finally,
3: here's the lovely Billy Piper again, giving the most enigmatic Tantalising tease as to what could be around the corner for her and I'm still none the wiser
2: Okay so professional ambitions for me currently I'm thinking about something really out there that I do not feel comfortable discussing um, <laughs> Okay
3: Okay we'll come back to that another day Because
2: I want to maybe go away and learn how to do it and fail and I want to do I want to have that experience privately I'd rather not talk about it and then if it if it sticks, then yeah. great. We'll we'll talk about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if not, it could just be that thing I went and did for three years. It was really quite weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm and fascinated um, now. Oh, I'll tell you when we're not doing yeah. the podcast. Send me a text. I'll send you a text. All right.
3: <laughs> and that, dear listener, is that thank you so much to all my amazing guests for being part of this season of David Tennant as a Podcast with and thank you most particularly to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it even a little bit as much as I've enjoyed making it and talking to these brilliant people and if you've enjoyed this music by the way the composer got in touch to see how thrilled he was that we were using his music. Listen William Benkert. I'm thrilled that you wrote this piece. I love it. It's called Take Flight. William Benkert. You can catch him on Spotify and hear more of his fantastic tunes. Isn't it lovely? So that's it. We're off for a bit, but thank you so much for downloading. And remember, if you want to take us with you wherever you go, I can't believe they're making me say this. We have merch. Oh yes, we have merch. Ladies and gentlemen, David Tennant does a podcast with his merch. I mean, can you believe that? Go to store.tenantpodcast.com. You can get travel cups, metal water bottles, mugs, mugs. And you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at David Tennant Pod. I mean, it's like a different language, isn't it? Um, dear, dear listener, thank you so much. And until the next time, cheery bye. David Tennant Does a Podcast With is a Something Else and No Mystery production produced by Zoe Edwards. Additional production from Harriet Wells, Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The executive producer is Chris Skinner.